Good morning. morning. You guys doing well? Sounds like a party going on in here, huh? Man, I love it. What a great morning this is. Good to have you with us. Hey, if you if you have noticed here, we've been maxing out this uh, Sunday morning services, both of them, and so. so as we continue to do that, just keep in mind that we still have a little room on Saturday nights. Saturday night service is still going on, and so if you want to make the move or you want to help us out a little bit by checking out our Saturday night, don't hesitate to do that. We're going to be doing a campaign right after the first of the year uh, to raise a few funds, but to more importantly to raise our faith in, in our unbelievable God that we serve and so that we can bust out these walls and expand our building. Yeah. And so. Just a little update on that, just that's where we're headed, and so it'll take us about a year or so as we raise funds, and then we look at uh, building out the rest of our 36,000 square feet that we uh, own here, right here on the corner. So uh, we're excited about what God's doing here. It's awesome. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 5, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's in the New Testament, chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 36 through 40. This is our Vintage Jesus teaching series, the Jesus most people miss. We're answering the question this morning, this weekend, why did he come to earth? Why did he come to earth? No one is more hated or loved than Jesus Christ, yet those who dare to look beyond the biases and prejudices and encounter the historical Jesus of the Bible are never the same. Here's one of my favorite uh, really kind of definitions or uh, quotes. It's from Sally Lloyd-Jones, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Kind of summarizes the whole Bible. If you want a good understanding of what the Bible is about, it's right here in this uh, quote. It should be on your notes. And this is what she said in the Jesus Storybook Bible. The Bible isn't a book of rules or heroes. In fact, if you were to ask most people, that's probably what they would say. What's the Bible about? Oh, it's a bunch of rules. It's a bunch of heroes. And she says, the Bible isn't a book of rules or heroes as much as it's it's a love story about a brave prince, Jesus, who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. That's you and I. That's us. That's his bride, the church. So here's where we're headed this morning. The whole Bible is about this prince, Jesus, The Old Testament promises God's rescuer through the mediator offices of prophet, priest, and king, and the New Testament presents God's rescuer fulfilling all three of these offices in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? See, probably some of you kind of have that, you're in another world there, you're kind of looking elsewhere. So do I need to say that again? So when you study the Old Testament, so there's these three mediator offices. Uh, persons, offices, and so this is how God connected with his people, related to his people through prophet, priest, and king, but they were all a picture of the New Testament person, Jesus. He came to fulfill those offices. And so if you want a healthy relationship with Christ, you need to know those offices because you're going to relate to him in all of those uh, different ways. So do you have a relationship with Christ? If you have a relationship with Christ, you're going to have each of those, prophet, priest, and king. In fact, the fullness of life that Jesus came to give to us is only found through a balanced relationship with him as prophet, priest, and king. He, as a prophet, he talks to us. As a priest, he walks with us. And as a king, he rules over us. And as you'll see in our notes here, he's a revealer, redeemer, and a ruler of our lives. So that's where we're headed. Great study this morning. Maybe 
new insight for you, but it's important that you understand this because as you'll see when we get to the application part, most Christians and churches have a propensity to underemphasize one aspect of Jesus' ministry or role or office which can have very tragic effects on your relationship with him and in living out the Christian life. So that's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's uh, pray and uh, then we'll dive into our text and unpack these notes. Father God, we are delighted to be here today. There's almost really a sense of kind of a party atmosphere here, and it's because of your presence being here so strong, uh, so real to us. Uh, When we call, you answer, and you come to us. We want to be where you are. We want to know your presence, your power, your peace in our lives. We love your presence, and we're here to celebrate all that we have in, in knowing you. God, we know that the holidays can be very dark and depressing for many, and yet you have sent your Son to give us a fullness of life that transcends our darkest and most difficult days. So we pray that, that you would give to us, through the study of your Word, the work of your Holy Spirit, this beautiful and balanced understanding of Jesus' coming to this earth to fulfill these Old Testament roles in our lives as prophet priest and king. May we understand how he speaks to us, walks with us, and rules over our lives, which will bring to us greater cheer during the holidays than anything we could ever deserve or dream. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. This is a text we looked at last week. The context, we talked about it. It was one of the many texts that we talked about last week but uh, it kind of helps us to understand what the Bible is all about. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus is being attacked by the Pharisees here because he's claiming to be equal with God. Verse 18 of this, uh, uh, of this chapter, chapter 5, it says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so he begins to give a defense of this attack by the Pharisees, and so we pick up the reading in verse 36, because he's going to give proof that he is indeed God in the flesh. And the first uh, line of proof that he gives is personal proof of John the Baptist. So he says, verse 36, chapter 5 of John, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of, of John. So he's already talked about John the Baptist, light a light, shining light in this dark world. And then he moves to this greater testimony, which is empirical proof that he is God in the flesh, and that is for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So he's got personal proof, empirical proof, and now he gives us the third kind of proof of his being God in the flesh, that he is indeed divine deity, and he says, and the Father, which is scriptural, he says, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. What is he going to talk about here? He's talking about scripture. His voice you have never heard, he's talking to the Pharisees, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one in whom he has sent. So he said, you don't believe me, therefore, this is pretty significant. And now he's going to tie this to the Scripture because it's through the Scripture. The Scripture reveals Jesus, and in the revelation of Jesus, we hear his voice, 
We see his form, and then his word is abiding in us. That's what we desperately need and want. And, but that's not what was happening in the Pharisees, and this is why he says in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Some translations even say you diligently study the scriptures. You diligently study the scriptures. So it's possible to study the scriptures and it be detrimental to you because you're studying them completely wrong. So it's really important to, to understand how to study the scriptures. And then he says... They were meant to, to bear witness about me, yet you refused to come to me that you may have life. This is the word of the Lord. So, so here's the deal. This is what you've got to understand as he's, as he's saying. So you can actually study the scriptures in a way that's detrimental? Oh, absolutely. How do you do that? That you make the scriptures about you rather than about God. You, you make it a book of rules that somehow you have to appease God rather than, yeah, there's certainly rules, but not to appease God, but rules to, to please God. Turn to the person next to you and see if they know the difference between appeasing and pleasing God. Okay, I think it's, it's important to kind of know what that, what that means. What's the difference between appeasing God and pleasing God? There is a difference. So, so you don't want to fall prey to appeasing God. It's kind of like the mythological gods. Oh, we've got to appease the gods so that the, the weather will change. Or, and so we've got to live by the rules to get God's blessing versus you have God's blessing, therefore you will live by the rules. Does that make sense? The major difference. We even study the scripture. If you're studying the scriptures, okay, I've got to do all these, you know, I've got to get my act together because I want God's blessing. You already have God's blessing. And, and what should, you know, motivate you to live according to God's word is that, man, you have everything you need in, in Jesus. It's because the book is about him, and that's where you're going to find eternal life. That's what he's saying here. So it's not good advice. The Bible is not good advice of what you must do to be right with God. It's good news about what God has done through his son to make us right with him. We're right with him. You're right with him by faith in Jesus Christ. And so, that's, so you can actually uh, turn it into a works righteousness or it's a grace and faith righteousness. Major difference between the two. And so as you study the scriptures, you're not studying it for, you know, like heroes to emulate or rules to follow as much as it's to a God, a person, the person of Jesus Christ to encounter, to have your heart smitten by him and then out of that love for him, to live for his glory, then you're going to live according to what he has established in his word. Major difference between the two. And we get really messed up with that. Our default mode is, is works righteousness, is to read it and make it about us. And it's our searching for God rather than God coming and rescuing us and searching for us. Okay, so let's talk about this. So Jesus came to earth, prophet, priest, and king. So these are the fulfillment. He came to fulfill. He's the fulfillment of all these things. By the way, we talked about that very clearly last week, Luke 24, chapter 24, verses 27 and 44, that Jesus said he came to fulfill the Old Testament, uh, it, the Moses and the prophets, uh, he came to fulfill all of that in his life. And this is how he fulfills it, is by being a prophet. Jesus came to earth as a prophet, here's your fill in the blank, confronting us with truth and calling us to repentance in him. He's a revealer. So prophets, when you look at the Old Testament, prophets represented God to the people. Their back was to God and spoke to the people in behalf of God. 
Acts 3, 22 through 24, it's on your notes. Peter is quoting Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, and he's quoting this because he's saying, hey, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Now, he's quoting something that Jesus, that Moses said. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So he's saying, Moses said, God's going to raise up a prophet like me, so he's He's predicting the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, that is Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. And then he says, verse 24, Acts chapter 3, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. So all of the prophets of the Old Testament were pointing to Jesus. Old Testament picture, New Testament person. Old Testament type, New Testament truth, Jesus. So Jesus comes on the scene to fulfill this idea of he's the ultimate prophet. Prophets uh, would speak truth, confronting us with truth and calling us to repentance. When Jesus embarked on his ministry, one of the very first things that he said, Mark chapter one, verse 15, he said, the kingdom of heaven is here, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe the gospel. So repentance is a 180, it's a turning from sin to Christ, and so repent and believe the gospel. What is the gospel? Now, this is a question I ask people all the time, and it's, it's interesting that a lot of American Christians don't even know what the gospel is. They typically go back to some form of moralism. I've got to be a good person, got to get my act together, got to do these things, someone who goes to church, got to read my Bible, put money in the box, that's not the gospel. Here's the gospel. The gospel is that you and I have been rescued from peril. We were doomed, and God came and rescued us. Um, what did he rescue us from? Peril. But what was the peril? He rescued us. God rescued us from God. the wrath of God, because we were doomed, because we had rejected and rebelled against a holy, righteous God, and so we deserved, uh, we deserved hell to be eternally separated, and God intervened and came in and lived, through Jesus, lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Now, understanding that, that's not a popular message in America today, we, because we want to hear that I'm really basically a good person. The Bible says, no, actually, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, but we know this, Romans 2, 4, it says that the, that the goodness of God leads to what? Yeah, the goodness of God leads to repentance. So it's the goodness of God. We begin to, we begin to so it's this good news. It begins with bad news. We're doomed for hell. We're eternally separated from God. But the good news is that he came to rescue us. So grace really has that, these, this message of the fact that I'm a sinner I'm a sinner separated from God, saved by Christ's works, not my works. Through Christ, I'm saved. And that's what separates Christianity from all the major cultural religions of our world today. I, am, I, I still, to this day, when I even say that, I'm just like, I mean, it's just it's stunningly beautiful that my God, the God of the galaxies, would come down and rescue me and give me his presence. And so, so it's his goodness that leads to repentance. That's, therefore, you need to know the difference between conviction and condemnation. You guys know John 3.16, don't you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But do you know John 3.17? For he did not 
come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. So the difference between conviction and condemnation, condemnation is really gives you a sense of hopelessness and despair, but conviction actually leads to joy. It's more of a joyful sorrow. You begin to recognize, wait a minute, why would I, why would I reject the one who gave his life for me? I'm going to live for him. I'm going to pursue him. So conviction uh, stirs up the fact that, hey, you, I'm on the wrong path here. I need to get back on the right path. I need to turn towards him, turn from sin and towards him. And so, so that's part of that. Uh, how many have ever, ever seen the movie Stepford Wives? You are familiar with the movie. You guys familiar with the, the movie? Interesting movie. It was a pretty interesting movie. And uh, it was about men somewhere in New England who kill their wives, and they have identical robots made, so nobody knows. The robots are perfectly compliant. How many husbands out there would like to have a wife perfectly compliant? Okay, so, yeah, be careful. Your wife, where's your wife? I'm going to tell her. My wife's pretty compliant, but she's not like perfectly compliant because she doesn't need to be. She shouldn't be because that would, be, that would doom our relationship. But there's some compliancy in there, but, but uh, they were perfectly compliant, and all they ever do is serve their husbands. I like that. <laughs> and they never say anything but, yes, dear, and they bat their eyelashes. Yes, dear. Boring? boring? Somebody say boring? Okay. It is not. Okay, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're robots. And so those are Stepford wives. Take a look at your next point on your notes. If you have a God in Christ or in the Scriptures as you interact with, with God through Jesus Christ, through the Scriptures, who only tells you what you want to hear and never offends you, upsets you, contradicts you, never crosses your will, you don't have a personal relationship with the living God. You have a figment of your own imagination. You have a Stepford God who bats his eyelashes at you and says, yes, dear. By the way, that's the kind of God that many Americans want. There have actually been a parade of people that have come through Desert Breeze and say, oh, wait, 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 you guys are too intense. You guys are too, you know, I get, what are we, too truthful? I don't know, but, but it's interesting because there are people that will say, and so what they do is then they'll look for that church that will make them feel better. Now, this is what it tells us in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Does that sound like our times or what? Yeah. I'm going to, hey, if I don't like what's going on here, I'll pick another church. Then the question is, are they speaking the truth? And there's going to be times in our lives where we're not going to want to hear the truth. It's going, to, it's going to, you know, create some disturbance within us. And this is what I found in my own life. And this is how I can tell when people are getting closer to God. The closer you get to Christ in comparable transcendent perfection, that he is holy, righteous, just, and pure in every way, the more you see your own flaws and sins and the more precious and electrifying and amazing is his grace to you. There's no intimacy without honesty. Would you guys agree with that? So the more honest I am when I come before God, study his word in prayer and worship, God speaks to me. And he confronts me over the issues of my life because I desperately need that. And, um, and so that, 
that not only brings this conviction, oh, but it's sweet. It's sweet because it brings me back to him because he's trying to do some course corrections in my life. He wants the very best for me. And that's, that's really important. Let me give you just a quick illustration of that in my own life. And by the way, with increased exposure to the truth plus decreased response equals hardness of heart. So if God speaks to me, speaks to me, speaks to me, I keep pushing him off, off, off over and over again. Over time, I'm going to have a hard heart and I'm not going to be able to hear him anymore. Does that make sense? So I'm going to go find the church so that they'll tell me what I want to hear because I can't hear the truth anymore because I've resisted his truth speaking maybe through, you know, his prophetic ministry in my life. And uh, just quick illustration here in my own life. Uh, I'm so thankful that God speaks to me so vividly and brings such conviction to my life. This last week, uh, I was struggling a little bit. And you've heard me say this before, that whatever you daydream about in your spare time is what you are ultimately serving and worshiping. So wherever your mind effortlessly goes to when nothing is demanding your immediate attention tells you a lot about your life. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. Um, And so so this last weekend, I I caught myself uh, thinking and worrying and anxious about my... uh, kids and grandkids. And it could be the fact that I just had a new uh, grandbaby girl. Uh, So that makes, so we got six boys, grandsons, and one little girl and one other little girl on the way, which is pretty cool. Maybe that's it. I don't know what triggered that, but I was like, I was really, uh, I just had some anxiety. And what the Lord began to speak to me is that, uh, is that my anxiety is a is, is often a failure to see how much God loves and cares for me, loves and cares for them. And he began to convict me over the verses that we'd studied not too long ago in 1 Peter 5, 7, where it says, cast your anxieties on the Lord, cast your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. And there was a couple other verses that came to mind as I was reading and studying this last week. It was Matthew 13, 58, and this is where Jesus goes into his hometown, and it actually ends that chapter by saying, and he was not able to do very many miracles in his hometown because of their what? Because of their unbelief. And then there was another verse that began to stand off the page to me. I was reading through uh, Hebrews 3.19, and it said that they did not enter into rest or enter into the promised land because of their what? Unbelief. And I thought, I've got unbelief. Oh, God, help me with my unbelief. And my anxiety, my worry inordinately was demonstrating that. So it gave me opportunity to repent and come back into, and fall into his arms and say, yes, God, help me. Teach me what it means to trust in you. And, and I use that as opportunity to pray. So does that make sense? So that's what we have to learn to do. So he's gonna convict us. So, so my question for you is what has he been speaking to you lately? He's working on you. You're not finished. He's not finished with you yet. How many think that they pretty much, he's pretty much finished with you? you? You got it all together? You're perfect in every way? So then, so okay, so if you're not, then he's probably wanting to do something in your life. He's probably speaking to you. So what is he, what is he speaking to you? What's, if I were to come to you and ask you, what's, what's the most recent thing that he's been communi- communicating to you as prophet in your life? What would that be? 
So maybe nothing even comes to mind. Well, then you need to be more aware of the fact that he wants to be a prophet bringing you to truth, as we said here, confronting us with truth and calling us to repentance in him. So as a prophet, is Jesus actively pointing out sin in your life through the study of scripture, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the fellowship of his people, the church, bringing you to joyful repentance. That's not just the way that you enter into faith in him, but it's how you continue as he begins to conform our lives more and more into his image and brings wholeness. And so this right here, relating to him as prophet, eliminates any superiority. And so when he convicts me, I, re- I realize I don't have anything on anybody here. I'm not like better than anybody. We all struggle. We're all, you know, the, the ground in front of the cross is level ground. And so that's important. That's the first, okay, let's move to the priest now. So that's the prophet. So we're talking about this, the way we interact with him, this relationship with him. So Jesus came to fulfill. Jesus came to earth as priest comforting us with grace and calling us to relationship with him. So he's a redeemer. So you got to balance the two. So yeah, you need for him to speak truth to you, but you don't stay there. You've got to have the hope of his grace. Yes, I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think, but I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. Now, so he's our, he's the revealer, but he's also redeemer. Hebrews 4 14 through 510. Won't read the whole thing. I put a couple of verses there on your notes, but in this text, the writer quotes Psalm 2 7 and 4, talking about the high priest. And in this text, this Hebrews text, uh, the writer here is talking about Jesus being the ultimate high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And what's interesting about what it says is that this high priest is different from all the other priests, is all the high priests, they would offer sacrifices, but this high priest offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And then therefore, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So stop there just for a minute. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're going through, he knows He knows, he knows, and he cares. That that sympathy that his heart is moved, it's stirred. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then, here's the invitation, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. What kind of throne is that? It's grace. It's a throne of grace that we may receive what? Mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here's the next couple fill in the blanks for you. There is no sin that we have committed or has been committed against us that is a match for our Savior's saving and sanctifying grace. So, so as he convicts us of sin, it draws our hearts to him. I mean, we, we find ourselves running to him with our sin and we find, we find mercy and grace. He loves us. He empowers us. That's all part of the gospel. Second uh, Corinthians 8 9 gives us, I think, the best definition for grace, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. He's talking about Jesus. For this is the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, this is God, he became poor so that you might become rich. You are more wealthy than the world's greatest billionaire. 
based on what he's saying there. You have, that, you have the wealth of heaven is what he's saying because, because he was rich, became poor, so that you might become rich. And so this is a gift, and that's what grace means. It's, a, it's unmerited favor and uh, unearned favor, nothing less than the presence of God in our lives. And by the way, if you can't earn it, you can't unearn it, okay? So if you can't earn it, you can't unearn it. It just is. It's yours. Enter in through faith in Jesus. Run into his arms. And so this is a gift unlike you've ever experienced, and nothing will so radically transform your life like the wealth that you have in Christ. Why is it? Because it is indispensable and costly. How many like gifts? How many like to get gifts from people? Okay. Nancy and I were at a restaurant here in town, and while we were sitting there, there was somebody from our church that bought our dinner for us. That was great. We love That's a great gift. It's a wonderful gift. We were very delighted. It was a lot of fun. But that gift was not indispensable, and it, was, it had some cost to it, but it wasn't like costly in the sense of what Christ has done for us. And it was a, it was a very great gift. It, it showed that they appreciated us and loved us, and we appreciated that love, and yet the gift that we received from Christ is indispensable and costly. Let me see if I can help you to understand this a little more clearly. What if you were a poor person in West Africa with Ebola? You guys have followed the news. Let's just say that you're this poor person in West Africa with Ebola and many of your own family members have died and unless you are treated, you will also die. The local hospitals are overwhelmed, inadequate, don't have the quality of medicine that we have in the U.S. But what if you knew someone who was not as poor as you and they liquidated all of their assets in order to come up with the money to fly you to the United States to give you the treatment that can save your life. That's a free gift that is indispensable because you have to have it, otherwise you would die. And it's amazingly costly, they sold everything. See, for you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. It's indispensable. There's no other way that we can have a relationship with God. We're doomed. So he rescues us from peril. It's indispensable, amazingly costly. It was the creator of the universe that came to this earth and bled and died on a cross for you and I. It's indispensable and costly. See, that's, that's, uh, that's the gospel. So when you put your faith in in Jesus, you are united with him in everything that he has, that he has ever done and deserves becomes yours, and the downside of that is that everything that you have ever done and deserve has become his. And, And that means that we are as loved and as accepted and as delighted in by the Father as Jesus' actions deserve. And he received all of the physical, emotional, spiritual death our rebellion against a holy God deserved. I mean, you guys would agree with with me that relationships are costly. To be involved in other people's lives, it's costly. Whatever it will cost you to be with Jesus is nothing compared to what it cost him to be with you. It's indispensable and costly. 
Now, I heard this story a number of years ago. There were a group of elders who were looking for elder candidates, leaders within a, a church, and there was one man uh, whose name came up, and they were all talking about him, and the senior pastor said, you know, he's a fine guy, and I love him so much, but I don't think he's ready to be an elder. By the way, this, this should be all of us. We should all be elders. We should grow and mature. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And they, they said, oh, I don't think he should be an elder yet. And, and, of course, everyone said, why? And he said, he is not happy enough a person, and therefore I believe he doesn't know how big a sinner he is. His life is not infused enough with joy, which shows he couldn't possibly know how big a sinner he is, because if he knew how big a sinner he is, he would be happier at the knowledge of the grace of God. And of course, I mean, that's, uh, to me, I, that stood, stood out to me. I mean, it's brilliant, it's fascinating, it's counterintuitive, it's, it's convicting, because I'm immediately... Uh, you know, I start thinking, I wonder what my life is revealing about the grace of God. What does my life reveal? Do I really realize I have been rescued from peril? I have his presence. I have all that I need in him. I don't, I don't always live in the reality of that. I didn't come close to living in the reality of that. See, if the knowledge that, that you are saved by the grace of God does not utterly thrill you all the time, doesn't infuse your whole life with joy, it means you don't know how big a sinner you were. You're not living in the reality of prophet and priest, the reality of this interaction that, that we have with our Creator. There is a kind of deep reservoir of joy that nothing I mean nothing, no bad circumstance can possibly put out. And if you understand the grace of God, you have that deep reservoir of joy. Feeling convicted? That's the Holy Spirit's working in your life. He's, he's saying, hey, you know what? You're living way below your privilege and your potential for what I've accomplished. And, uh, and so... So as priest, is Jesus sympathetically forgiving you of sins and healing you of your past hurts as you grow in the grace and in the knowledge of a robust relationship with him that you wouldn't trade for anything? So the, so the first, as a prophet, that eliminates superiority. This eliminates inferiority. The resources of heaven, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. I mean, we need to recite that and just continue to be reminded of that over and over again every day to live in the reality of that. So that takes us to the next point. How do we begin to live in the reality of that as king, commanding us to love and calling us to rejoice in him? So he's, uh, so Jesus came to earth as king, commanding us with love and calling us to rejoice in him. So as a prophet, he's a revealer. As a priest, he's a redeemer. As a king, he's a ruler. So he talks with us, walks with us, rules over us. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So this is through the lineage of David talking about the Messiah. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So it's 
predicting this future king, Jesus, and of course Jesus admitted to Pilate, yeah, I'm the king. John 18:37. then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. And so when you hear Jesus, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It also tells us in Philippians 4, 4, it says, rejoice in the king always. Actually, it doesn't say king, but it says Lord, but Lord means king. It's another word for king. He's the Lord of our lives. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Here's your next point on your notes. As our loving king, ruler, Lord, we can joyfully obey all that he commands. So, so now we're beginning to work this into the specifics of our lives. Prophet, priest, now how do I get this into the de details of my life? I, I learn to obey him and all that he commands. Here's the next one. This is a hard one. Accept all that he sends. And I know that he has sent some pretty harsh things into our lives. Some of you have experienced some really difficult things, but you're learning how to accept all that he sends and believe that his power is more than enough to face anything in life and death for his glory. So here's my question for you. Are you learning to understand him as your loving king, ruler, Lord, and are you joyfully obeying all that he commands whether you agree or not? Because I hear people say this, well, you know, I like some of what Jesus says, but there's some things I just don't really agree with. What? He's the Lord. He gave his life for you. He's the king. He rules your life. It doesn't matter whether you understand it or not or agree with him or not. You're going to follow him. He gave his life for you. I always go back to that. He gave his life for me. Of course he loves me. And then here's the next one. Here's the, the hardest one. And are you learning to accept all that he sins whether you understand it or not? I prayed with someone last night that they're going through a really, really hard time. And they just don't understand. And I said, so, so I said to them, so, so you, as you get to know him, are you able to just turn it over to him and understand that, that you can submit to his loving, wise control of your life? That's where you, you are and that's where you're going, as you're grappling with Certainly you grieve the hit that you've taken in your life, but can you accept the fact that this is part of his divine design plan you're not going to probably fully understand this side of eternity, so you're going to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. You're going to trust in the Lord with all of your heart and not lean upon your own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So I had a chance to pray with them, and, and there was almost a sense of relief as I, I was praying with them, and as they're kind of walking through that, I said, it's, it's not over yet. You're going to still have to grapple with this, but that's part of that, working it into the specifics of your life. I don't understand this, but God, I know that you have my best interest at heart. You're my prophet, you know what's best for me. As my priest, you want what is best for me, but as my king, you will do what is best for me. I know it doesn't make sense this side of eternity, but one of these days it will. When I come face to face with you, I'm gonna go, oh wow, that's unbelievable, that's incredible what you have done in my life. That's, that's part of working it into the specifics of your life, walking by faith and not by sight. That's that next one. And believe that his power is more than enough to face anything in life and death for his glory. Now, let's talk about application. Uh, let's knock out this application, and uh, this is where we get into the imbalances. As I said, most Christians, even churches, have a propensity, and this is what you're going to find. You could go to different churches here in the valley. I could probably even take you to some of them and show you how they overemphasize some of these basic truths. Now, we don't, 
We certainly, I'm not saying that we're perfect here. We struggle with trying to find this balance, okay? Week in and week out as I struggle, this is the balance I'm trying to find in our own life and in my life, but you need to, to struggle with this balance. Prophet, priest, king, relationship with God. And so when we, over, when we underemphasize one aspect of Jesus' ministry or role or offices, this can have tragic effects. So here's, here it is. Prophet plus king minus priest equals legalism. So prophet speaks, king rules, so he's a revealer and ruler, but if you minus the, he walks with you, he's the redeemer, that's legalism, that's fundamentalism. And, and there's churches out there, they will beat the living daylights out of you. They will. And so you must obey the rules to be loved and accepted by God, that's their, their big thing. God is seen as cold, distant, stern, harsh boss, uh, just waiting for you to mess up so that he can yell at us. That's kind of the mindset. And so we are prone to run from him rather than to him in time of need. So if you find yourself running from God rather than to him, it's probably because you have some of this mixture. You see him as being this harsh boss. So your natural inclination should be to run to him in time of need. Oh, I can run into his arms. Prodigal son, running, in fact, what's interesting, prodigal son didn't run to the father, the father ran to him. And the more you begin to understand the truth of this balance, he runs to us. And then it says, literally, he smothered him with kisses, Luke 15. I mean, I love it. I love it because I'm a mess and he's constantly running to me and smothering me with his kisses and saying, dude, get up, come on, we can do this. I'm gonna empower you. I love you. I've forgiven you. And the only sins that you can overcome are the forgiven sins. They've all been forgiven, by the way. And so you're able to overcome those sins because you know that you're forgiven in him and he embraces you. And so you begin to, to be able to overcome those sins. And so, so we're prone to run from him rather than to him in time of need. The result is either despair or pride. So if I'm living according to a list and I'm hitting that list, I'm going to feel better than you. But if I'm not living according to that list, I'm going to be in despair. I'm going to beat myself up. Probably not even want to go to church because look how bad I've lived this last week. That's a wrong idea. What this should create within us, if we really understand this balance between prophet, priest, and king, is this worship, humility, and joy that the gospel should produce in our lives. Okay, so here's the next one. So that's legalism. The next one is priest minus king plus prophet. So priest is that I understand him as my redeemer, but minus the ruler revealer, the king and prophet. This is called liberalism. God loves and accepts everyone just as they are. No need to obey the rules. Jesus doesn't point out personal sin and call me to repentance, nor does he want to restrict my individual freedom and personal happiness. God forbid that he should restrict my, my individual freedom and personal happiness because it's all about, about him helping me with my individual freedom and personal happiness. Does that sound like America or what? American Christianity, it sounds like. He would never offend us, raise his voice, hurt our feelings, speak harshly, or command us to repent with a sense of urgency. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so those are those two. Those are those two extremes, legalism, liberalism. Now, here's where American evangelicalism is, is where I can see it, being raised in the church here in America today. He's prophet, 
plus priest minus king. We're struggling trying to work it out into the details of our life. So he's the revealer. He's a redeemer. He's certainly not the ruler. And I, I didn't know what else to put down. I wanted an L word, so I just put lethargyism. Okay? So it's not a word. I just made it up. Okay? So this is what it is. It's general assent to basic Christian truths with your born-again certificate. Hey, I got dunked in the tank. I walked the aisle, signed the card. But you're unmotivated beyond that, producing a moral life that is virtually indistinguishable from the average non-Christian in many areas. So when you look at the American Christian today, their life is pretty much not any different from the non-Christian. Did you know that? That's American Christianity. Read the stats. So they know him as prophet and priest, but certainly not as king, working the specifics of the gospel into the details of their lives. That's what we need as we continue to do that. Jesus speaks the truth to them as their prophet and loves them as their priest, but they are not learning how to surrender to his kingship, his rule in every area of their life, financially, relationally, leisurely, sexually, all of those details. And so the, the balance goes back to what we talked about here in our study. Prophet, priest, king. Let me end with a story here. We're almost finished. This is, uh, this is from Center Church, Tim Keller's book. He says, C.S. Lewis wrote that if there is a God, we certainly don't relate to him as people on the first floor of a building relate to people on the second floor. We relate to him the way Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. He, we characters might be able to know quite a lot about the playwright, but only to the degree that the author chooses to put information about himself in the play. In the Christian view, however, we believe that God did even more then simply give us information. Many fans of Dorothy Sayers' detective stories and mystery novels point out that Sayers was one of the first women to attend Oxford University. The main character in her stories, Lord Peter Whimsey, is an aristocratic sleuth, a detective, and a single man. At one point in the novels, though, a new character appears, Harriet Vane. She is described as one of the first women who graduated from Oxford and as a writer of mystery novels. Hmm, who is this? Eventually, she and Peter fall in love and marry. Who is this? Who was she? Many believe Sayers looked into the world she had created fell in love with her lonely hero and wrote herself into the story to save him. Very touching. But that is not nearly as moving or amazing as the reality of the incarnation, John 1.14. God, as it were, looked into the world he had made and saw our lostness and had pity on his people, and so he wrote himself into human history as its main character, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The second person in the Trinity, the Son of God, came into the world as a man, Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Let's pray. 
So God made this, this truth, the reality of this truth, it's, it's amazing. It's breathtaking. And our, our lives and our relationship with you can tend to be so imbalanced. And so as we understand more clearly that Jesus came to earth as, as a prophet who speaks to us, Lord, may you speak to us. May we heed your voice, hear, hear and heed your voice and that he came as a priest who walks with us. May we know and experience your presence in our lives and as a king who rules over us. God, as a prophet, you know what is best for us. As a priest, you want what is best for us. And as a king, you will do what is best for us. So Lord, may we learn to rest and trust in you with all of our heart and not lean upon our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge you as you direct our paths There is not a more life-liberating, soul-satisfying relationship than one fully devoted to you, Jesus. So help us to be more fully devoted to you in every way, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said...